Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Inside Sports is brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Enjoy the show. One of the more colorful coaches in the history of the National Football League, and if anybody needs to understand who Rex Ryan is, I mean, I think the guy is uh, is fun to be around, fun to talk to, and he's got a lot going on uh, in, in where he has been as a former head coach of the New York Jets, former head coach of the Buffalo Bills. His dad, of course, Buddy Ryan, a great defensive mind, and his sons have done pretty well as well. But it'll be interesting to see what Rex's take is uh, on this current season coming up. Uh, you know what? Let's bring him aboard and talk to him a little bit and see what the coach has to say. There he is, uh, my favorite coach, Rex Ryan, joining us now on Howard David Live. How are you, Coach? I'm doing well. How are you? I can't complain. So this is the time of the year that football guys like you, the, the juices start to flow a little bit, right? Even though it's before training camp and the anticipation, the schedule's out, the draft is over, right? Absolutely. And, and normally, though, this time of year, Howard, as you know, like you were all your mini camps, you're meeting with your players, you're, you're installing your entire offense, defense. And as a coach, this is uh, like you cherish these times. You, these are fantastic times. Now, in today's world, you know, you're on those Zoom meetings and, and things, but you're at least, at least you're dealing with the players. And it is exciting. And you're right, Howard, when you talk about the schedule being released, it really becomes real. And what I mean is, so not only as a coach, you're, you're meeting with your players, you're doing that, but you're also, and this may sound crazy, but you're also getting your all the groundwork laid for your first three opponents. And that's what every coach does. You're starting to get initial plans. And quite honestly, Howard, I, they'd be, you know, we'd be off in training, uh, uh, for summer vacation and half the time you're still thinking about it as a coach you're thinking about those first three opponents so it, it's crazy it's that time of year we i know it's different obviously with the situation we're in right now but uh, but as a football coach it's still football time well the last team you coached the buffalo bills in 2016 right now i think it's fair to say with the departure of brady from new england that the Buffalo Bills are considered to be the favorite to win the AFC East. Would you agree with that? Absolutely no question about it. And I tell you, Sean McDermott's done an amazing job there. And, and one of the best things he did, he brought Leslie Frazier in as his defensive coordinator. Obviously, their time together in Carolina. Um, and then the other thing he did, he cleaned house. And he 
needed to. And that was something that very few head coaches, when you go into situations, you don't have, you're not given that kind of authority unless you've already been an experienced head coach. Usually they don't afford the, um, the, the rookie head coaches, if you will, that kind of authority. But in this case, that's exactly the authority that Terry Pagula uh, gave Sean McDermott, and he literally cleaned house. Every scout is gone, is, is new. People in the building are new. And there's a new energy uh, with it. And ever since he took over, uh, you, you've seen that kind of energy from this team. They combine that with a, a very talented roster and a young budding star at quarterback. So I agree with you, Howard. I, I think without question this team is is the team to beat in the East. All right, the, 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 teams, the team that you used to butt heads with uh, regularly in the AFC East with the New England Patriots. Now Brady's gone. Now in Tampa. The expectations are, are sky high for the Buccaneers in a tough division with New Orleans. But the question I got for you, it's a $64,000 question. Where is there more pressure? Is it on Tom Brady or Bill Belichick? Oh, I don't think that. He, look, first off, none of these guys have anything to prove. They, they've already proved it. you got the greatest coach of all time in Bill Belichick, the greatest uh, player in all time in Tom Brady. So they have nothing to prove. They've already done it. Even if they go over, they've already proved it in my eyes. However, they're both super competitive. And don't think for a second that either one of them is is uh, is going to back down to this challenge. They're definitely going to feel it. It's going to add to it. And, uh, you know, it's both these guys, you know, uh, they're both super competitive. And they're, you know, they'll be dang if, if they're going to not, you know, uh, you know, not put their best foot forward and, and uh, compete to be, hey, I show, you know, I told you so. I still think there's some I told you so in both of them. And, look, I, I don't doubt either one of them. I think, I think Belichick's still going to be successful without Brady, and I, and I feel the same way about Brady uh, with Belichick. They're, they're both great. We'll see how great they can be without each other. I had um, Warren Moon on my podcast last week, uh, a guy that played the position and I said, of all the quarterbacks playing in the NFL right now, does any quarterback make you sit home watching the game and make you go, wow? He didn't even hesitate. He said, Patrick Mahomes. It just came right out of his mouth immediately. Uh, this guy is impressive. And it's not only his ability, coach, on the field. I just love the way his, his, his demeanor he's got for a young guy when he had to come from behind seemingly every week in the playoffs, particularly in the Super Bowl. This guy just didn't look like he's phased by anything. No, and that's how, exactly how he plays, and I totally agree with Warren Moon. Look, you and I both have been, you've been covering the NFL for years. My entire life, basically, has been uh, involved in the, you know, growing up in, in a uh, coaching family, as I did. So about 50 years of, uh, we've had a, a Ryan on an NFL sideline. So we've seen a lot of huddles broke. Both of us have. But I've never seen a kid like this. And the thing that you're you're right that separates, look, the arm talent is, is amazing. The ability to throw off platforms amazing. His escape ability, everything. He checks every box. But the thing that is the most impressive, and you talked about it, is how cool this kid is. And it, it was. 
this game with all the pressure and everything else in the biggest moments, this guy's actually at his best and he's at the, uh, the coolest. So to me, I've never seen anything like it. If he continues, we'll be talking about him being possibly the greatest ever. So, But we'll see. That's a long way away. But my gosh, is it fun to watch him. Yeah, no doubt. Now, you're a, a, you're a coaching lifer. And Andy Reid's a coaching lifer. So as a former coach and as a guy, I mean, you know the, this guy and you know all the guys in this league. But I think it's universally explained that everybody was thrilled to see Andy Reid finally get a ring. Oh, absolutely. He was probably the best coach that had never won a ring. You know, so, and, and look, there's, there's no shame in it. If he never would have uh, won a ring, he's still a Hall of Fame coach. So, but to me, you're exactly right. I was so happy for him. He's a great guy, and, and, and he's been a phenomenal coach for years. And it just, so yeah, it was, you know, was I happy to see him win one? Oh, hell yeah, I really was. You know, all the talk about these young hot shots and all that, and all Andy Reid does, he goes out and he, he wins himself the Super Bowl. So, yeah, I think that was, that was great. And, let, and let's look at it this way, too. He had the courage to trade up two first-round picks to get this, basically, a guy that was called a system quarterback, all right? But he knew he wasn't a system quarterback. He was just a great player. And he had the, the courage to go out, made the trade with Buffalo, got Pat Mahomes, and the rest is history. But he's also taken a lot of risks uh, in drafting, uh, you know, some of the kids that he's done. Some guys with questionable character issues, and, and it's paid off for him. So we'll see if that still continues. But, yeah, without question, I was so happy to see it for Andy, and, and he deserves it. And, and quite honestly, as an old, old guard guy, uh, I was so happy uh, for Andy and, and his staff and, and, and family. I, th- I talked to, talking with the great Rex Ryan, I talked to, um, to Bill Parcells a, a lot because I've known him since 82 and he was a defensive coordinator with the Giants. And then, and then broadcast the Jet games, you know, when he was a the coach there. Uh, I, I keep thinking to myself, um, there's always, and they're making a difference what walk of life you're in. There's always the one regret. There's always the one mulligan you want back. And for Parcells, it was the 98 AFC Championship game when he lost to Denver after leading 10 to nothing in that game and one stop and 30 minutes away from going to the Super Bowl. And that to me, today, well, he'll tell you flat out that's his biggest regret. What's yours? Yeah, well, I have a bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> we got time. But, yeah, I, I think, though, Howard, I, I guess when you look at it, there's two things that really jump out at me. And, you know, just from game-specific things, uh, one of them, and, and they're against the same guy. They're against Peyton Manning. And so, to me, we had the best team in the NFL in 2006 with the Baltimore Ravens. We, we broke a record uh, defensively that year uh, with being number one in the NFL in more categories uh, statistically than any defense in the history of the game. Nobody even talks about that defense because we lost in the playoffs. Sure. All right, we gave up five field goals that day. I believe we turned the ball over five times. But it's not that we played bad. You know, we, we played well uh, defensively. 
I was the defensive coordinator then. But from a team standpoint, we we, we were going to win the Super Bowl that year. And I knew it. I'd been, been there before. And then we got beat by Peyton Manning. He, he had one of the greatest throws I've ever seen against two-man. We're, we're playing uh, cover two-man. We're challenging him. And he put a ball into Dallas Clark. And, and to this day, I mean, it, it ticks me off. And I, I told my team that day, my, you know, the, the guys, I said, uh, if we don't, if we keep him out of the end zone, we'll win this game without question. And I had Ed Reed later and, and different guys later said, you know, as I told him, I said, I've never lied to you, ever. I told you what I believe to be the truth. And they're like, no, you did. Coach, you said if you if we don't get Peyton Manning a touchdown, we're going to win that game. <laughs> and, and so, But that's one of the ones that stays with me forever. And it was funny. I was texting. Peyton Manning and I were texting back and forth. They, they replayed that game. And I said, you know what, Peyton, I'm going to. I'm going to turn that thing off uh, just before halftime. So we were up 11 points um, with the Jets, a team that nobody saw coming. And, and like ourselves, we win that game, we go to the Super Bowl. And we just, he carved us up. And, and that was my second one, my second game. Uh, you know, so, and it was, it was like, you know, so my first year as a head coach of the Jets, and then, the 2016 with the Ravens, with my, my first year with the Jets, we're up 11 points in the AFC Championship game, and Peyton Manning just tore me a new one. We <laughs> we had lost two corners. Uh, everybody remembers Sean Green going out, and we had lost two corners during the course of that game. Uh, and as soon as we saw it, Peyton looked over, and it was like, <laughs> there's, there's nothing I can do. And, you know, so to me, I almost, I've never felt helpless on a sideline as a coach, but I came pretty close that day uh, of feeling that way. You know, as you well know, in this league, it's a me too league. If you are successful doing something, another coach is going to say, you know what, why don't we try that? And I'm talking specifically about Tayshawn Hill in New Orleans and the way that he's being utilized there by Sean Payton. Uh, he's got the ability to run. He's got the ability to throw. And you just wonder why more teams have not tried to duplicate what it is they do. And I know it's not – you don't go into a draft saying, I'm going to go draft a guy who's going to be another Tayshawn Hill. But you look for more coaches, don't you, to try to duplicate that? Yeah, and it's funny because for years, you know, that old saying, speed kills, and that was the way Al Davis built his teams, uh, you know, on speed and size. And when you look at it, look, this kid, you know, all these guys, um, you know, are, they're, they're, they're impossible to find, you know. But when he came out, uh, you know, it, it was, it's one of those things where, you know, it, it just, you know, he had, he had some, some problems off the field, I believe. And I think that's what kind of knocked him down. But. My goodness, you know, you, you look at the way uh, Oakland this year, they draft everybody's question, who's going to be the first receiver taken? Well, they end up taking uh, rugs because of that explosive speed. And, you know, so we'll see, you know, we'll see, uh, you know, how it goes right there. Everybody, Jerry Judy was the guy that everybody talked about for years out there. 
and then Tayshaun, uh, and then um, uh, they end up taking runs. And I think you're right. It's because of they realize how impossible it is to defend, uh, you know, the cheat out there. Well, I watched Judy, I watched Ruggs, I watched Alabama a lot last year, and Judy impressed me with his route running. I, I just, I, I've never seen a college player be so well-disciplined in route running like Judy was last year. Yeah, that's a great point, Howard. And when, when I look at it, he reminded me of Amari Cooper, another uh, player that came out of Alabama, very similar in it was the same thing. They were saying the same exact thing about Amari Cooper. And the thing also that separates them is, you know, I forget what the clock says when you're timing these guys. It's his his acceleration out of his brakes. Or maybe you talk about his route running. At the top of his routes, that's what separates him from other, other guys. There's guys with more burst, all that stuff at the beginning of a route, but not at the top of the route. And I think that's the thing that is so unique about this young man. And and that's what I thought, you know, for my money, I thought he was the best receiver in the draft. He ends up going to Denver. Mm. Uh, I think it is, is a phenomenal spot for him. So uh, it, it's, you know, he's going to be there with, with the young quarterback there. I, I think it's, it's going to be really interesting to, to follow him. You know, look what Denver did. When you talk about a copycat league, they go out and spend their two top draft picks on receivers. And this is Vic Fangio, a defensive head coach. Everybody talks about it. Yeah, well, he knows as a defensive head coach how difficult it is to, to cover these receivers. So uh, he went out and got those two guys. I think is you know is is something that uh, I think you're gonna have to watch out for that team. I, I really do. And, you know, they, they hit the free agency hard with uh, Jarrell Casey and, and Boue, the cornerback. Uh, and then all of a sudden, now you get these two receivers. So I think they're going to be a, a team that uh, that maybe isn't on teams or people's radar that I think they could, they could do some damage this year. Well, let me, let me wrap this up by asking you about one team in particular that the expectations were pretty high last year. And I was I was surprised, frankly, that they got derailed when they did. And I'm talking about the Ravens. Uh, I mean, Lamar Jackson, this guy, the, the only thing that scares me about Jackson is what's happened to Cam Newton. I mean, after a while, the quarterback that likes to run a lot, you know, starts running into resistance and it can cost you maybe big time like it has cost Newton to this point. So Lamar Jackson, I would think, and Harbaugh, the coach, and – the whole team, they got an agenda, I think, coming into the season where, you know what? We disappointed ourselves last year. We're not going to let it happen. What what do they have to do uh, to, to get where they want to be? Well, their run defense can't disappear like it did in the playoffs. And I think that's two years in a row they've disappointed uh, in the playoffs. And I think you know, you can't be the Baltimore Ravens. One thing you, or two things you can think of is number one, they're going to be physical as heck, and they can stop the run anytime they want. That's been their their moniker for years. Uh, but that wasn't the case in the playoffs. They got bullied, and you know, and I know John Harbaugh well. I've coached with him in college. I coached with him in the NFL, and that's that's not sitting well there. 
So when you look at what they did, they went out, they, they got Calais Campbell. They, so they already have one of the best defenses in the league. And Wink Martindale's a, we go way back, we coached together in college, is an outstanding coach there. Um, but they go out and they get Calais Campbell. And their, their pick, they pick the uh, get Queen in the first pick, the LSU linebacker. He might have been the best linebacker in the draft. And they're able to pick him, wait there and pick him up. They draft another running back. So guess what? Here comes grounded pound. And, it's, and, and that helps your defense also. But I really think that they're going to be, the message is clear, that it's, it's Super Bowl or bust with this team. And, and I, I think John Harbaugh is the right guy to lead them. And I just think it's, it's interesting. Lamar Jackson, you know, and you're right, Howard, people talk about the pounding he can take. And I think your example is much better than most people's example. You, t- you compare him to Cam Newton. Most people will throw out the kid from Washington, you know, different guys who get hurt all the time. This guy's body is way different than that. I think you're right. I think it's more Cam Newton type physically, yet he's more elusive uh, than Cam Newton. So to me, it's uh, I, I think the kid, he he's going to stay healthy because that's what he does. This is this is how he plays his uh his lower body, his you know his his legs, his hips, all that stuff. This is a uh, this is a big a big man, uh, you know, playing the quarterback position. But he knows how to protect himself. He's so elusive. He's sometimes the fastest guy on the field. So he's still going to protect himself. He's got awareness, and, and he's special. And I think that's that's not going away any anytime soon. Greg Roman, the offensive coordinator. Uh, does a really good job there in, in utilizing uh, Lamar's running ability, especially down in the red zone and on third down. But it's the plays that you don't design where this guy excels, the extending the plays and, and throwing uh, balls you know, down the field, extending plays and running with it from the pocket. That's what just absolutely kills you as a coach. You can't prepare for it. So to me – I think it sets up great. Is it the Chiefs? Is it the Ravens? We're getting ready to find out, hopefully. And, and I would not be shocked if Baltimore doesn't win it all next year. Yeah, I, I wouldn't either. Well, coaches have this ability to come up with, maybe you guys rehearse it. I don't know. Parcells came up with the great, you know, if you want me to shop, if you want me to cook the meal, then let me shop with the groceries. And I remember what you said. You said, I didn't come here to kiss Rick, uh, Bill Belichick's ring. You never did, did you? No, I never did. And, and here's the thing, Howard. What's funny is I've got more wins against Bill Belichick than than any coach in, in league history. Unfortunately, I have more losses. Also. <laughs> so I never kissed his ring, but he kicked my butt several times. Pleasure having you on, Coach. Thank you very much for your time. All right, my pleasure, Howard. He is Rex Ryan. He is. He's a beautiful cat. I mean, really is. Honest to goodness. He's, he just knows. He just knows. I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I look at certain guys and the impact they've made on a league and, and, and so on. And, and certain guys just stand out. They, they just stand out. So when we talk about the ability to succeed in this league, 
in the National Football League, you just, you separate the pretenders from the contenders. And yeah, Ryan never won the Super Bowl. But you can't say his teams weren't prepared. Had a couple of shots at the AFC Championship, came up short. Um, this, um, I mean, he's a cat that's, you always, you, you never had to worry about, like I'd go on the field before a game. And I'd say, what do you think today, coach? And he'd give me something. And he would, he would trust you that you wouldn't betray a confidence. And to me, that's a guy who's self-confident and is not afraid of his own job. And that's the way Ryan was. And, and I think the game misses him. Uh, for whatever the reason, he's never found a job since he left Buffalo. But he did a good job in Buffalo. He did a good job with the New York Jets. And so we move on. We're going to shift gears and go to the NBA because there's discussion. Shaquille O'Neal says, I don't think the NBA should start right now. We're going to discuss that with the voice of the Milwaukee Bucks, Jim Paschke, in just about four or five minutes from now. Uh, and his Bucks, man, they got themselves maybe the best player in the NBA in Giannis Antetokounmpo. And I think the hardest part dealing with the Bucks is how to pronounce Giannis Antetokounmpo. Now, he's got a good team around him. Does he have a great team? I'm not ready to say that. Uh, because when you look at the Lakers with LeBron James, and you look at uh, Anthony Davis, and you look at the Clippers with Paul George, and, uh, and Kawhi Leonard, you see superstar, superstar, two superstars in each of those teams, but only one on the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, now, they're going to come out of the East after playing the likes of Toronto and Boston and Miami if and when we resume the season. Uh, I, I don't know how it's going to all play out, but I completely believe that Adam Silver will find some way, uh, some way to get this thing straightened out because... He's an effective commissioner, there's no doubt. He learned from David Stern, so he learned from the best. He learned from a guy that knew how to market the league. Adam Silver learned from David Stern how to run the NBA. And he's picked up the mantle or the baton, whatever way you want to use it. And uh, he's, he's going to get the job done some way, shape, or form. Now, having said all of that, before we go to Jim Paschke, uh, there are certain guys that have cross paths with me, and I'll give you an example. Joe Namath. Joe Namath was, um, he was Broadway Joe. Joe Namath won Super Bowl three with the New York Jets. But then Joe Namath's in the Hall of Fame. And then you ask yourself, well, isn't the Hall of Fame about numbers? And the answer is yes. But yet Joe Namath completed 50% of his passes in his NFL career. Not great. It's okay. He threw 173 touchdowns. He threw 220 interceptions. Now, usually the great players have a better touchdown-to-interception ratio. But Joe Namath had a, had a sub-record. He had more interceptions than touchdown passes. Does that diminish who he was? I really believe that Joe Namath is in the Hall of Fame because of Super Bowl III, because he helped expedite the merger of the two leagues, the NFL and the AFL, and I think he's given a lot of credit for that. The other guy that has been given, that should be given more credit, is a guy who angered a lot of people. He pissed them off. Let's be real. Talking about Al Davis. Al Davis was a maverick. But Al Davis 
was as key to the merger of the two leagues as uh, as uh, Lamar Hunt, the Kansas City owner, and anybody else associated with the old AFL. Al Davis was a guy that made things happen. Was he a maverick? Yeah. There was a lot of negative press about Al Davis. There was a book uh, called Slick uh, that basically pointed out a lot of negative things about Al Davis. I read the book. Okay, whoever wrote the book, I don't remember who wrote the book. I read the book. It was a page turner. And I came away feeling that whoever this writer is and the people that he has been quoting, uh, they, they had an agenda about Al Davis. Uh, that he was a bad guy, that he did things underhandedly. And, and I can't attest to that. I wasn't there. I just know that I believe in treating people the way they treat you. And I met Al Davis on the field before a game. Uh, an old friend of mine, John Dockery, former member of the Jets and the sideline reporter when I was doing games, uh, he introduced me to Al, and Al said, where are you from? I said, New York. And he said, well, I'm from New York. I said, well, I know that. He said, key question, where'd you go to high school? And I said, Erasmus Hall. And he wrapped his arms around me. He says, now I love you, because that's where Al Davis went to high school in Brooklyn. So from that point on, from that point on, Anytime I saw Al Davis, he always came over and gave me a big greeting. So I go on the field before a game. It's a Monday night game. And I'm down on the field, and I see Al Davis, and I go over, and he gives me a big hello, and we're talking. And Al Michaels comes over, who was doing Monday night football for ABC at the time, and he interrupts our conversation, and Al Davis says, to him, whoa, 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 hold. Can't you see I'm talking to Howard here? And I knew that wasn't going to sit well with Al Michaels. It wasn't going to sit well at all. He turned around and he stormed away. And he was angry because he was Al Michaels. He's a big deal. He's the voice of Monday Night Football on television. So what is everybody supposed to do? Come to a screeching halt because you're being rude and interrupting somebody? Look, Al, Davis gets, uh, Al Michaels gets a lot of credit for being one of the great television play-by-play -play voices in pro football history. It's deserved. It's earned. But you wonder how fast he would have come along had it not been for Do You Believe in Miracles from the 1980 Olympics with the U.S. hockey team. Either way, I, I know he was going to be, achieve a certain status, but that doesn't give you the right to be rude. John McKay, coach of the Tampa Bay Bucks after he left Southern California, had the greatest one-liner, one of the greatest one-liners ever. And that was when somebody asked him after his team was 0-14, and, and some reporter said to him, what do you think of your team's execution? He said he was all for it. When I was doing Sunday Night Football with Pat Hayden, who played for John McKay at Southern Cal, we had arranged to play golf, and John's son, Rich McKay, who's very involved with the NFL and has been for a long time, to go play golf. I don't remember a thing that happened in the four hours we played. I just remember laughing for four hours because Coach McKay was a hoop and a lot of fun to be around. And one other thought, as long as we're in basketball, Bill Fitch, who made the Hall of Fame not that long ago. This is a, a curious induction into the Hall of Fame. 13 losing seasons out of 27. He won 944 games as a head coach but he lost 1,106 games as a head coach. And I'm thinking, what did this guy do to deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? 
I was around him when he was coaching the Nets. He had a nasty side to him. He was a game player. But was he one of my favorite people? Not really. Was a guy that I cared for a great deal? No, not really. But having said that. Good afternoon. This is Jim Paschke. Oh, wow. This is Howard David, Mr. Paschke. How are you? I'm great, Howard. How are you? Well, you are live and in color from the great city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And how are things there today? Everybody under, under quarantine like we all are? Yes, we're still under quarantine. I think our uh, shelter in place goes through May 26th. Oh, really? You got a date? Yes. Well, I just, I just saw today where New York Governor Mario Cuomo has signaled May 15th as a day. To, now, does that mean that, every, that everything is going to be opened or just selected things? Uh, they haven't really said yet. I think it's going to be uh, piecemeal. And, of course, that could be shortened to earlier in the month. But right now it's set for the 26th. And they would gradually uh, open things up. That's my understanding. But uh, it's day-to-day here like everywhere else. Yeah, I, when I think of Milwaukee and think about the, the nice time I spent there when Herb Cole owned the franchise, you know, I still talk to him a couple of times a year. Um, what a gentleman. I mean, you know him better than I do. Howard, he's the best. It was a great privilege to work for Senator Cole all those years. And, um, you know, that's an old-school approach as opposed to the NBA we're in today with uh, a different type of ownership. And uh, I'm very privileged to have worked in both systems. And uh, Senator Cole was terrific to all of his employees. Nobody wanted to win more than he did on a daily basis. And uh, we knew that when we were working with him. It was a little smaller organization, of course. The resources uh, weren't quite the same as they are today, but it was wonderful working in what I call the era of the sportsmen and sportswomen, as opposed to the larger corporations and companies that are in the business today. So it was just a different time and uh, very enjoyable. You looked at this Milwaukee team now, and when... The season came to a screeching halt. The Bucks were sitting on top of the NBA with the best record of uh, 53 and 12, which is incredible. Um, I look at the Bucks from this standpoint. I look at the Lakers first, and here are the Lakers with two superstars in LeBron James and Anthony Davis, and here are the Clippers with two superstars, and we're talking about uh, uh, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. And then I look at the Milwaukee Bucks and I see Giannis Antetokounmpo. And while I think that, that uh, Chris Middleton is a very good player, averaging about 18 points a game or whatever it was at that time, does two superstars beat one? And, and, and before you even answer that question, Milwaukee, it would seem to be, if they resume the season today and whether they go right to the playoffs or whatever, the, the, whatever's going to happen to it, You'd still have to look at the Bucs as the best team in the East and probably should emerge. How hard is it going to be for them to match up with either one of the L.A. teams if they make the finals? Well, that's a great question, and I think everything you laid out is uh, is true. Uh, when you talk about LeBron James and Anthony Davis, of course LeBron James uh, supersedes everybody in the league right now in terms of his experience winning championships, in terms of his resolve to win championships. He's on a different level. And then the Clippers, of course, uh, you know, great coaching and Kawhi Leonard. Uh, 
he's won a championship. We saw him firsthand last year uh, in the Eastern Conference Finals, and he also has that ability to take over a game, but no one can do that quite yet the way LeBron James can, in my opinion. Giannis is growing toward that, and I think Chris Middleton is a very capable and able number two, uh, and I think he's underappreciated. I think those two are growing to where the others we've mentioned are at the moment. So if this would not be the Bucks year, for instance, I think the immediate future, if they can keep this team together, could grow into the kind of team that has the resolve and the ability to get through tough seven-game series at the end of the line. And that's what I saw when this season opened. After the Toronto loss last season, I saw a different kind of resolve on the first day of training camp, and I saw that on the last day that we watched them practice and play before the shutdown, Howard. So uh, I'm a big believer in what's building here. Uh, Anything can happen. We'll see. If it were Giannis in the finals against LeBron, you'd have to look and see if youth had a slight advantage over age in any situation. Who has the home court? Uh, the Bucks split the series with the Lakers. They split the series uh, with the Clippers, I believe. And uh, those two would be very formidable opponents. It would be a great finals if that should happen, if we get that lucky to have uh, a finals this year. What, what's your best guess, Jim? Uh, I'm talking with Jim Paschke, the TV voice of the Milwaukee Bucks. What's your best guess about how, because Shaquille O'Neal said that he didn't want to see the, the, he doesn't want to see the league coming back right now. So with that, uh, what's your best guess about how things will eventually resume? It's interesting, Howard. We had a town hall last Thursday internally for Bucks employees, and I had the privilege of interviewing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and I asked him how important it would be for the NBA to crown a champion this year. They crown a champion every year in existence, and he flatly and quickly and easily said it's not important at all. So that kind of shocked people a little bit. They got a hold of me and said I was surprised by that. But I don't think we should be surprised by that because Kareem understands that this is not about the calendar. This is not about uh, championships and rings. It's about the health of our entire country and the world. Uh, That's his take on it. So it's really difficult for me. I don't have enough information. I know the league and everyone in the league is hoping that something can be rounded off this year and finished off this year. But uh, in terms of a best guess, it's really hard to tell at this point. Uh, The last I heard, for instance, Oregon has a stay-in-place order until July 6th. Not that that would uh, inhibit their basketball team from taking part in something, but it's just all over the place in terms of where we are on this as a society. Talking with Jim Paschke, the TV voice of the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, you still doing games with Johnny Mack, or is he is he hung him up? Uh, John did a few games last season. This year uh, was his first uh, away from television. Marcus Johnson and Steve Novak uh, are my main partners, and uh, uh, we're moving forward uh, in that way. John is still with the organization. We see him quite often, and of course, uh, uh, he and I were able to work together for thirty-three seasons. Howard, incredible. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's people don't even realize it. You mentioned Kareem. Uh, Kareem and Oscar Robertson were the foundations for the Bucks championship in 1971. And Johnny McLaughlin was on that team. That was a I mean, think about it. We're talking about superstars. You got. Well, wait a minute. He wasn't Kareem yet, though, was he? Wasn't he still Lou Alcindor? Yes, he was. Lou Alcindor. You also had Bob Dandridge, who. Right. 
won a championship in Milwaukee in 71 and then ended up with Washington and won a championship in 1974. In Milwaukee, Bob Dandridge learned how to be the third wheel, if you will, and then McLaughlin was the great shooter. Four pretty good players, and they had others too. That was a very dominant basketball team statistically. I'm not sure they get enough credit for that when people rate the top 10 teams in NBA history. That team was phenomenally uh, statistically dominant. And it's interesting because this current Bucks team has done things that that team did. They've done, in some cases, more than that 71 Bucks team did. So we're seeing dominance twice now in Bucks history. Well, last year's Bucks team won 60 games. This year's team has, what, 53? So they, they likely would have topped last year's record. Um, you mentioned Kareem. When I first started in the NBA with the New Jersey Nets, we go to L.A., and I went over to the PR guy. I said, gee, I'd like to do an interview with, uh, with Kareem or Magic. And he goes, well, Kareem will talk to you. Just go over and introduce yourself. He'll, he, he'll talk to you. And I said, okay. I walked over. He's sitting there. I said, excuse me, Kareem. I said, I'm Howard David. I'm here broadcasting the game for the Nets. I wonder if I could spend a few minutes. He goes, sit down. He goes, well, where are you from? And I said, Brooklyn. He goes, well, so am I. I said, I know that. I said, as a matter of fact, if you look on my forehead... And he's looking at my forehead. I said, Spalding is still on my forehead. He goes, what do you mean? He says, what do you mean? I said, well, when you were a freshman at Powell Memorial High School in Brooklyn, and I was a senior at Erasmus Hall High School in Brooklyn, we played an exhibition game against your team. And I was the third guard, and I came into the game and made the stupid decision to drive down the lane against you. And you planted one on my forehead with the ball on a block shot, and he was only like six, seven at the time, Jim. So, <laughs> so he's, he's starting to laugh. I'm laughing. All of a sudden, we're starting to exchange Brooklyn Dodger information. You don't even realize what a, what a thorough historian Kareem was about the Brooklyn Dodgers. Howard, I talked to him Thursday, as I mentioned, and you're absolutely right. And not just about baseball. He's an authority on anything you can think of. I mean, he's one of my favorite people in terms of intellectual depth, his humanitarian work and spirit. Uh, if I need to, if I, if I were to pick out someone I needed to get information on or a thought on our society or anything like that, I would first think about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's a fascinating man. Uh, he was talking, I asked him what he was reading during the pandemic and the shutdown, and of course he was reading a book about Jackie Robinson. And, uh, and then that led me to ask him if I vaguely remember correctly when the Sheboygan Wisconsin Redskins were in the league, which was a precursor to the NBA, they went to Los Angeles and played a team for the alleged championship at that time. And I said, didn't Jackie Robinson play professional basketball? And he had every detail, Howard, on Jackie Robinson playing in that game against Sheboygan. He remembered it. He knew it. He's an amazing human being. Yeah, he, uh, well, Jackie was my hero growing up in Brooklyn. Uh, I, I wore number 42 on my basketball uniform, my baseball uniform, my football uniform. I always, and then I got a chance to meet him, you know, years later when I, I was working in the city and he was working for Chock Full of Nuts and he, I, saw, I saw him on 43rd Street and Lexington Avenue. And as he's walking by me, I'm thinking to myself, you idiot, you got a chance to meet the, your hero. So I ran after him down the street and tapped him on the shoulder. I said, Mr. Robinson, I said, you don't know me. I said, but you were my hero when I was a kid. And I just wanted to come over and say hello. 
Jimmy, he stood there and talked to me for a half hour on the streets of Manhattan. I, I was the great ones do, don't they? Yeah, I, it's I was amazing to me. They they always do. The greater they are, uh, Muhammad Ali. We can tell stories about him the same way. The greater they are, the more time they take, and the more generous they are with their time, just about with everybody. And uh, I've noticed that in my life, and it's it's a fascinating and a wonderful thing to see. Well, Jet, so we we talking for a half hour. And I said, well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I appreciate you standing here talking to me, somebody you don't even know. And I said, I, I said, thank you very much. And I extended my hand. He shook my hand. He said, do you want me to sign something? And I didn't have any. I had a pen, but I didn't have any. I took a dollar bill out of my pocket. And he signed, <laughs> he signed the dollar bill. And it's in a glass enclosed case now in my office, in my home. And it's one of those cherished things that, you know, no matter what else I have in, in terms of memories, that to me is the standout. But uh, Kareem was, I mean, when I saw him for the first time, I walked on the court for warm-ups. We're playing Powell Memorial High School. And I looked at this guy and I said, oh, my God, he's, look how big he is and how agile he is. And, but, you know, he was, he was incredible. As, look, today's NBA player, and we go through, we go through periods, and, and watching The Last Dance, the uh, – the documentary on Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Uh, I, I remember seeing Michael Jordan the first time when I first came into the league, and I was impressed like everybody else. And people will say he's the greatest of all time. And I'm not going to argue that. To me, he was the greatest of his time, and LeBron is the greatest of his time. The argument of who was better between the two is silly because two different eras, two different rules, two sets of rules, two different games. Two different games, totally. But you watch that documentary on Michael Jordan, and you do come away with more knowledge and more opinions than you thought you had before. It has been fascinating, riveting, compelling, thrilling. I've, I've enjoyed it. You and I, of course, were doing games during that period of time, so that was right in our wheelhouse, the golden age, the modern golden age of basketball. And it is just fascinating to watch it again and to pick up little things that I didn't know necessarily and, and the pieces all kind of fit together um, I'm just always moved by the players who are that competitive and it really came out at the end of uh, episode 7 last night when he was explaining why he did things the way he did them I mean there is such a fierceness to those winners to that level of a winner it's just fascinating to me yeah, um, I remember going into the locker room before a game in Chicago, and Jim Spinarkle was my partner who played at Duke and knew Michael. And he introduced me to Michael in the locker room, and I said, can we do a few minutes on tape? And he said, yeah, let's just keep it short if you don't mind. I said, okay. I said, do you have any understanding of how big your celebrity is? And he looked at me and he goes, no. He says, my mother and father brought me up to respect people um, and, and to have a, and have determination to succeed and so on, but no. Uh, and and I, but when he said it then, I believed him, but when you look at like, the challenges that he took on when Jerry Krause said, you know, Dan Marley's a really good defensive player, and he went out and destroyed Marley in the playoffs that year in, in, when the Bulls played Phoenix, and, and, or he said something about that Tony Kukoc is going to be a great player. I mean, he took that as a challenge. It, it's amazing to me that the things that you say to Michael Jordan, he takes as a challenge, 
and then he has the ability to take you apart. Well, based on stories that I heard from Mark File, who was the Milwaukee Bucks trainer after he had been with Michael in Chicago, he left right before uh, they won the six championships, so we always gave Mark trouble about that. But he would tell me stories about how Michael Jordan would, I don't know what the amount was, maybe $100 from each player, and bet that his bag would come off the airplane first when they returned to Chicago. And, of course, it always did. He had set that up, and he had given the uh, person who handled the bags $100 and had his bag come off first. So that, that level of competition extended uh, off the court, too. I mean, it's just fascinating to me. And he probably pulled that off three or four times before somebody figured it out. Talking with Jim Paschke, the television voice of the Milwaukee Bucks. <clears throat> I, talk, I had Bob Costas on my podcast uh, two weeks ago. And I brought up, I said, you know, Bob, I saw a lot of video of you interviewing players in the locker room after championships. How many suits did you go through after they were soaked with champagne? He goes, he says, too many. I said, well, you should have had a Chuck Daly clothing deal. And it wouldn't have been as bad for you. But I asked him specifically about the rumors that were going around when Michael, Michael's father was tragically killed and people tried to link it to Michael's gambling and maybe he was involved with some bad people. And Costa said to me on the podcast, there's not one shred of evidence that Michael's father's tragic demise was as a result of Michael's gambling. And I believe that. I, um, you know, we were all aware of what was being said and whispered at the time, uh, all kinds of things. But, uh, you know, there was never any fact that came out. There was never anything about a suspension uh, when Michael retired. Uh, people thought that uh, maybe that was related in some way. And, of course, uh, on the show last night, on the documentary, uh, Commissioner Stern categorically denied it. Brian McIntyre had a, a great response to that. And so... Uh, I am away from that conspiracy situation altogether now, not that I ever bought into it, but we were aware of it, and it was out there, as you know. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> talk about, about this book organization. The ownership has changed, as you've noted. Um, it, it, it's a whole different scenario, but the realism is that uh, Giannis has made a big difference to this franchise. And there was an article recently in a New York newspaper where the uh, the writer was hinting that you know the Knicks are going to go all out uh, to go after Giannis when he's a free agent. Before we go any further, what is Giannis's contractual situation? Where is he right now? Well, he has another year after this current season, the hiatus season. Uh, he is under contract. He can sign an extension when this season is over, uh, and he could sign with the Milwaukee Bucks for five years. This is my understanding, and he could sign a year later for four years with another team in the league. So, of course, everyone, uh, you know, suspects that teams in the league are looking at that and, and perhaps uh, trying to figure out what might happen should Giannis change his mind. He has been a very loyal uh, person. He has uh, stated repeatedly that he appreciates Milwaukee giving him the opportunity. This city fits him in a lot of ways. Uh, he's not a bright lights person. He has said that repeatedly. And as someone who has been with him since he got here and, and followed him and, and had a lot of exchanges with him, uh, I believe him until uh, proven otherwise. So uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, he can sign an extension 
whenever this current season ends and when that period of time, you know, none of this is, is on uh, is concrete at this point. So we don't know when the free agency period will be, but whenever that is, he is eligible to sign an extension. Uh, and then if he would decide not to do it at that time, he would become a free agent, a free free agent uh, a year from that period of time. Yeah, how much discussion has there been? Have you talked to anybody in ownership? Um, no, and, and they made it very clear that, uh, you know, of course, they want to keep Giannis here, and everyone in Wisconsin wants to keep Giannis here, and Giannis has said that he intends to be here, but, uh, you know, we've seen this before in the league, your team, I won't say you're under attack, but you essentially are under attack when you have a player of this level, everyone would try to, uh, you know, do their thing, but, uh, uh no reason to believe uh, there'll be any changes at this point, but I don't know anything inside on that or uh, you know what, what the intentions are uh, on either side. But uh, pretty clear to say that the team would uh, want him to stay. Yeah, going. I would imagine. Tell me about the new arena. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, state of the art. Of course, it's uh, no longer the newest arena in the league with Golden State's new building, which is uh, outstanding as well. But this building... Uh, has been just a boon to Milwaukee. The area uh, in downtown Milwaukee around it is growing. It will continue to grow over the next few years. Uh, it's been fantastic, and, and I haven't heard anybody uh, talk negatively uh, about the new building at all. It, it is designed for basketball. It is set up extremely well. Access is good. The amenities are good. The food is great. Uh, it, it's just a terrific, terrific building. Well, you'll be interested in this. Uh, my, uh, my wife, Phyllis, and I went into Madison Square Garden this year for a game. Uh, the Houston Rockets were in town, and uh, it, was the, it was the biggest win of the season for the Knicks. Uh, they've had a miserable year, obviously, uh, with the coaching change and so on. And so we go into the, um, into the hospitality suite before the game, and uh, Walt Frazier and I go back a long way, and so we would, we're standing there talking to Walt, and a guy comes walking in, and I looked at Walt and I say, I know that guy. He says, well, you should. And I turn around and look, it was Vin Baker. Ah, yes. So uh, Vinny apparently, uh, is he still involved some way in covering the Bucks? Uh, Vin is actually an assistant coach. Uh, he was working with us on uh, television, doing pre- and post-game shows. Occasionally he would sit in uh, on games when necessary and when available. And now he is on the coaching staff of Mike Budenholzer. How about that? So I walk over to him, and, and he turns around, and he looks at me, and he looks at me again, and all of a sudden his eyes light up, and he gives me this big hug. He goes, HD, and he gives me this big hug. <laughs> I haven't seen you in a long time. And he came over to where Walt was standing with my wife, and we stood there and talked for about 20 minutes, and he says, man, it's good to see you. And I said, it's good to see you. And apparently he's, uh, he's, he's turned his life around completely. And I'm personally delighted. It's a great story. Vin uh, wrote a book about his uh, trials and tribulations and difficulties after coming into the NBA. And uh, I would recommend it to anyone. It's a, it's a great story. He's one of my favorite people. And his story is uh, magnificent. It's, uh, really a, a full circle situation for Ben and he's doing incredibly well happy uh, and uh, fulfilled and he should be what do you hear from big dog Robinson not a lot uh, 
I think he's still in Atlanta. He was always involved in the music business. I'm not sure. Uh, pretty quiet. Uh, we don't hear from him. Once in a great while, he'll come back for uh, something special, uh, a big event in Milwaukee, um, an anniversary season, that type of thing. I believe he was back for uh, the 40th, if I'm correct. Uh, but he has been has been pretty quiet. Uh, when his son was playing with the Bucks, I saw him a couple of times that season. And, uh, you know, he, he's, he's doing well, but he is going about it very quietly and privately. Yeah, his son's a pretty nice player. Not bad. Not bad at all. And, uh, you know, you can you see talent there. Uh, he doesn't have that big dog yank like his father had. And, uh, but he does some nice things. He does some very nice things. Well, uh, I think uh, the coach of the Bucks is a good coach. Uh, I think the Bucks uh, have, um, you know, they're, they're always going to have the label of the small town team and so on. And it would be kind of uh, interesting, to say the least, if they got to the NBA Finals. It's going to be tough, as you well know. Toronto, I thought Toronto was going to fall away after, uh, after Kawhi left. But my goodness, what a phenomenal job has been done with that team. I agree with that. Uh, Coach Nick Nurse has been incredible. Um, he, of course, reshaped the offense a few seasons ago before he became the head coach, and uh, there has been nothing but spectacular results in Toronto. He's done a, a wonderful job, and uh, Coach Budenholzer has done a great job in Milwaukee. John Horst, the very young general manager, has been incredible uh, since getting the job here. He's made great moves, and it's been fantastic. I, you mentioned the small market of Milwaukee, and I think when you have a player like Giannis uh, who can get endorsement deals, he has the top-selling shoe in Nike history, um, surpassing even Michael Jordan's initial shoe when it came on the market. Uh, I think some of that small market, big market situation has been abated, and I think Giannis has played a role in that. And he'll, he'll tell you that, too. He said, I don't really think that it's a big deal anymore. He said, we play basketball in Milwaukee the same way they play basketball in New York and Los Angeles. Of course, we know that outside of the organization, the, the opportunities are a little different in those major cities, but uh, you can you can do just fine in, in the Milwaukee's and the Sacramento's, the Indiana's, uh, depending on the talent you have on the court. Well, you know, my experience in Milwaukee, I came away with the, with the thought that uh, it's a great town in so many ways. And the people there, they're, they're good people in Milwaukee. Um, and I don't say it to, to just to blow smoke. I mean, I, I mean it sincerely. And if you're looking for a place to go to in the summertime, I mean, you're going to find some pretty good golf in the state of Wisconsin. Oh, destination golf, world-class golf, Whistling Straits, uh, everything up around the Sheboygan area, Kohler, Wisconsin. Herb Kohler uh, has a golfing uh, complex up there that is second to none. Of course, major championships are being played at Whistling Straits. Uh, absolutely true. And we are an underrated foodie city, in my opinion. Uh, great food, all kinds of food in Milwaukee. It's excellent. This is a really good spot. Uh, I got here a long time ago, 1980, and it has kept me here. Um, the Bucks have had something to do with that, of course. But uh, I love Milwaukee, and, and this, is, uh, this is my forever home, Howard. Well, most people don't. They, they hear Jim Paschke in, in Wisconsin. They think Milwaukee Bucks. But the fact of the matter is, you're with the Brewers and hold the distinction of announcing the only no-hitter in Brewers history, and that would be Juan Nieves. April 15th, 1986. 
1987 Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I think that was the fifth game that I had ever done, fifth baseball game I had ever broadcast in my life, certainly at the major league level. I think I, maybe I had done a little league game in Iowa or something <laughs> at one point. But, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to have that opportunity in the fifth game that you've ever done is incredible. And I, I still uh, still remember most elements of that. And, and, you know, back then it was strange. I, I also have the distinction of not mentioning the no-hitter on television. I think we got to the seventh inning, and I was working with Mike Egan, who had been a world champion with uh, the Oakland Athletics. And I properly, in my opinion, said, you know, how do I handle this? And Mike said, don't mention it. <laughs> Took a little heat for that. You couldn't do it today. Yeah. But uh, there's only been one, and the next night Bud Sealy saw me, and he knew that people were getting on me a little bit, and he said, I wouldn't give it a second thought. He got the no-hitter, didn't he? So, you know, it's some fun stories with that. But, uh, uh, yeah, that was a special night, of course. Very cold and, and uh, a little bit windy. Sounded like a 12-year-old in that cold at the end. and uh, But it was great. It was a great night. Well, I remember going to uh, Bucks practice uh, at their facility in the dead of winter. And I, draw, I turned the corner, and there was a bank on this corner, and it had the time and the temperature up on, on the, in the front. And I saw minus 11. <laughs> and every time I think I'm cold living in the Northeast, pff, piece of cake compared to Milwaukee. <laughs> now, well, why would you mention one of our warmer days? <laughs> <laughs> That's true enough. Oh, that, when you were at the Brewers, was that after Merle Harmon? Sorry, the Bucks in 1986-87 was my first season. And then the following spring, uh, I was with the Brewers, 87 through 91, and then uh, I went back. I was out for three years, and then I went back in 95 and 96. So uh, seven seasons total. Uh, enjoyed it very much and uh, loved it. I absolutely loved it. And to be able to do both sports in the same city uh, was remarkable, and I still don't understand how that happened. And at some point, we weren't doing as many games over it. I think we had 30 Bucks games on television when I started and 60 Brewer games. And then at the end, we were up around 105, 110 baseball games and 60 basketball games. And that's pretty uh, pretty heavy duty for one person. I, I, if I had been able to do it well enough, I still would have worn out the audience. So uh, <laughs> at that point, I made a decision to... Uh, switch over to basketball well, it turned out pretty well yeah well Jim Irwin did both the Bucks and the Green Bay Packers uh, simultaneously as I recall and the University of Wisconsin and yeah yeah and so I, I followed Jim with the Bucks but uh, interesting to note that on Wednesday uh, Wayne Larrabee is going to join me uh, on the podcast and we'll talk about Green Bay Packers and a lot of discussion going on about that franchise uh, I mentioned Merle Harmon uh, in the 80s uh, I wound up doing sidelines for um, a college football bowl game at that time in Houston, the Blue Bonnet Bowl, and Merle was the play-by-play guy. Um, and I learned in a week of being around Merle what I, I, I mean, I was still a young broadcaster, was barely in the business, um, maybe I was in the business five years, and Merle taught me a lesson that I never forgot. He said, prepare for everything. But if you use more than 15 to 20 percent of what you've prepared, you've spoken entirely too much. 
absolutely correct. He told me the same thing. You and I had two of the same mentors, Ray Scott. Right. That's how I got into the business. Right. Ray uh, gave me a chance to sit in an NFL booth for a division championship. It was, I believe, it was Dallas and uh, and the 49ers in San Francisco, and it was Ray Scott and Pat Summerall, and that's the first day that I had been around television in my life, and that's the day I got the bug for this business. I loved it. And and then Merle Harmon, when I got to Wisconsin, um, became a bit of a mentor also. He was such a wonderful guy. I worked in Madison, and we were on the Brewers Television Network and got to take a trip every year for a weekend, and the one I went on was to New York, and Merle Harmon met me in the lobby and said, let's go, and walked around New York City with me. I'd never been in New York, <laughs> and we formed a friendship, and he was such a gracious man oh. uh, and, and taught me so much, and he did things for me that he didn't have to do. I, I remember one day I was covering the Brewers on a Sunday. It was a double header. if you remember what those were? And... I'm sitting in front of the booth and Merle called out. He said, Jim, come up to the booth. And I was working at the CBS TV station in town. And he said, Bob Euchre and I have to go down on the field for something between games. I want you to come in and just recap the scoring and give scores around the league and fill till we get back. And hmm. I said, I don't know if the station you work for will like that since I work for a competitor. And he said, Jim, sit down and do it. And so he, did that type of thing for me and wonderful man just a wonderful man oh, yeah. I, I miss those two gentlemen I always will and uh, we had great mentors in those two Howard yeah well Ray Scott <clears throat> uh, was doing the Hall of Fame Bowl in Birmingham and I was his sideline guy that same year and we you know I was at that game doing sideline for the Wisconsin Badgers oh really yes sir huh, see we didn't know each other then we did not. No, so but I can remember seeing you walk down the steps from the press box to the field. I remember that clearly because I know who you were at that time. Well, I'm working with Ray, and we drive to the game together with uh, somebody else who's in the car. I forget who. And we pull in the parking lot, and Ray accelerated to the parking lot. And all of a sudden, the bubblegum machine was spinning. The police came after him. <laughs> so I said... Uh, hey, Ray, slow down. There's a cop channeling you. I don't care. We got to get upstairs. And he was very, he, he wanted to be on time. So finally, he, I said, Ray, pull over. We're in the parking lot. Finally, he pulls over and the cop comes over and, he, and Ray starts giving him some guff. And I'm going, Ray, shut up. <laughs> so the cop then proceeds to, you know, I said, officer, forgive him. He's under a lot of pressure. We're doing a game. We're doing the telecast of the Hall of Fame ball and so on, and uh, can you kind of just look the other way? He didn't mean anything by it, and, and we'll behave ourselves. Well, the cop was, was, was a decent guy, and he listened, and he didn't give Ray a ticket. So as the cop's pulling away, and I looked at Ray, and I said, do you realize what happens if you get busted and go to jail? I got to do this game, and I'm not ready. <laughs> the other trip I took when I was in Madison was to Texas, and... Ray was doing the Brewers play-by-play, -play, and I sat in. He brought me in in the first inning, and then he feigned illness and turned it over to me, and I had to do eight innings without preparation. <laughs> and that was the first Major League Baseball experience I had. He was sitting right next to me, but uh, he wasn't sick. He gave me the opportunity. We've been very fortunate. 
Well, to me, my recollection of the Milwaukee organization was that they got a uh, they got a lot done with a skeleton crew of people. Is it still that way? Uh, the Bucks, no. Uh, we are very large now, and and that goes with the increased resources that the current ownership group has. Of course, Herb Cole was one owner, and now of course we have uh, four principals and then a larger group of minority owners, including. Um, Aaron Rodgers of the Green Bay Packers, huh. and uh, I heard so him. no, it's uh, it's a large organization now, and uh, much different than in the old days, and fascinating in its own way. I mean, you have to have that sort of an organization in today's world. And uh, Senator Cole did two great things. He bought the franchise when it was in danger of leaving Milwaukee back in 1985. And then he sold the franchise at just the right time to keep it in Milwaukee and get the new building, uh, sold it to the current group of ownership of Mark Lazary, uh, Wes Edens, Jamie Dinans, Mike Facitelli from New York. And uh, those resources were able to uh, help get the new building and, and build this franchise to where it is today. So uh, Senator Cole uh, made the right move twice. And, and the second move wasn't easy for him because he loved the Milwaukee Bucks, but he loves Milwaukee and Wisconsin even more so, and so he uh, he gave up the franchise so that it could prosper further. Well, he impressed me. Uh, uh, I remember uh, I had to, after I agreed to, to do the Bucks, they told me that John Steinmiller told me I had to fly to Washington and meet with the senator. And I said, okay. So I took the shuttle from New York down to Washington, and I walk into the Senate office building, and I'm passing Ted Kennedy John, uh, 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 Bob Dole, and I'm going, oh, my God, these guys are bigger than life. And I walk into the senator's office, and he's very nice, and I go into his office, and I said, I just saw Bob Dole and Ted Kennedy. I said, seriously, Senator, I'm the only one in this building I never heard of. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, it was interesting. Not too many United States senators have owned pro sports teams, and, uh, one of the thoughts I had very early on, and I kept that thought while working for Senator Cole the entire time, we had fans, but those fans were also constituents of it. Well, yeah. It was, it was, it was different. You had to be uh, aware of that, in my opinion. Um, and it was, it was fascinating. It was, it was very good, very interesting. Well, what's interesting is that when I got there and through the time I was there, John Steinmiller... Uh, did everything but check your coat at the door. I mean, he, he was a man that wore many hats. My direct boss all these years, 34 seasons, uh, well, not quite the last couple, but uh, an incredible sports executive, in my opinion. He started uh, at the very bottom when he was in college at Marquette University. The first job he had was putting the uh, letters on a marquee by hand outside the office. <laughs> Those little plastic letters you have to put up there, he did that, and uh, then he ended up running the business side of the organization for so many years. And you're absolutely right. Um, many hats, but the hats allowed him to have incredible attention to detail. Yeah. And, 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 and through all of that, he, he kept a personal way about him that is really unmatched in my experience. Uh, couldn't have worked for a better person all those years. And we have a great leader now uh, in Peter Fagan, and he has some of the similar qualities to John. He's very much involved and, and touches base with people and 
lets you know he cares and lets you know that uh, you need to care as well, which is totally fair, obviously. So uh, we've been very blessed when it comes to leadership with the Milwaukee Bucks. Well, hopefully the season will resume um, and there will be some games in whatever form, whether it's going right to the playoffs or whatever format they come up with. And I have complete confidence that Adam Silver, who, for my money, is the most effective commissioner in pro sports today. But that's that's just a personal opinion. Uh, and, and I think it's I'm very excited to see the, the, the league start up again. I'm very excited to see the NFL start up again. And, and hopefully this will happen sooner than later. Jim, great talking to you. Howard, it's been my pleasure. I second your uh, statement about Adam Silver. And this league has always impressed me, too, for all that it does. It leads the way in so many ways. It's inclusive. We saw it in the pandemic situation. The NBA was right at the forefront making the right decisions, and they will make the right decisions when we come back, and they are likely to be a leader in that regard, too. Always great to talk to you. I don't get to do it as often as I would like anymore, and please give Phyllis my regards. Appreciate it, Jim. Thanks again. My pleasure. Jim Paschke, television voice of the Milwaukee Bucks. If you get from that conversation that um, the Milwaukee Bucks are a great organization, you'd be right. And the thing that impressed me about Herb Cole, the, at that time the senior senator from Wisconsin, was that he never took a dime in contributions to, for his campaigns. Never. Not a dime. And the reason was simple. He said, I don't want to owe anybody anything. And I believed him when he said that. I mean, just think, well, if he, fortunately he had the, the funds to do that, you know, from the Cole's department stores and part of that family. But... Uh, Senator Cole was great to me when I came there and when I told him I had to leave with a year to go on my contract because we just had our first grandson and I wanted to be back in the Northeast to be there when he was born. And Senator Cole said, I understand, I, I don't want to lose you, but if it's going to upset your family, I, I don't want to be standing in the way of that. And so for, I'm forever indebted to him for his stance on that. I wish him well. I wish the buck organization well because they treated me fairly and and Jim Paschke is really a good guy in so many ways uh, and he's been there since day one he's associated with that franchise and I mean I'm telling you even to the point of when you I'd walk into the arena for the night of a game and the, the the ushers the guys that were working in the arena every day they knew me and I knew their first names and it was kind of it was kind of a unique experience and one of the benefits of being with a small town team, because I'm growing up in New York, and I'm used to the Knicks and the Rangers and the Mets and the Yankees and, uh, and the Rangers. And so here we are in a, in a market like Milwaukee, where, uh, you know, the Bucks are big in Milwaukee, but the Green Bay Packers are the game in, in that state. There's no question about it. Uh, as goes the Green Bay Packers, so go the fans. And the thing that's amazing to me is that they'll sit there at Lambeau Field, for my money, uh, the greatest stadium, football stadium in the country with all the history surrounding it. But when I think of going to do a Green Bay Packer game, and as cold as it is in Green Bay, and I'm there during the playoffs in January one year when they're playing uh, Carolina in the NFC Championship game, and it's nine degrees below zero at kickoff. And I'm down in the field before the game going, what am I doing here? Are you crazy? But went back upstairs, 
It's a bright sunny day. We left the windows open to the booth. Didn't bother me terribly calling the game and so on. But the fans of, of Green Bay and the state of Wisconsin, I mean, there's, there's no other like them. They're just amazing. They'll sit there in the frost cheering on the Green Bay Packers. It's, it's truly a phenomenon. And so you've got cities like Pittsburgh where the fans are great. And it gets a little cold there, but not like Green Bay. Green Bay cold's a different cold. It's like waking up in the freezer in your house. I mean, it's, it's, it, the cold is oppressive. But you go in there to see a Packer game. That's a big deal. And I don't know about you, but look, I'm a big sports fan. Calling a game in a city like Green Bay is big for me. Calling a game in New York is big for me. Calling a game in Pittsburgh, in Miami, in Cincinnati, in Cleveland, San Francisco, L.A., I don't care. Calling a game. We're doing something we love to do. Tomorrow. Great day tomorrow. Great week, as a matter of fact, in terms of guests. Tomorrow, Andrew Marchand. He's the media critic for the New York Post. I'm really looking forward to speaking to Andrew about a lot of things that are going on. Of course, ESPN has made the announcement. They're shaking up the Monday Night Football booth. Uh, I'm particularly upset about that because Booger McFarland is a friend of mine, and I did not want to see him lose his job. Uh, hopefully he lands on his feet somewhere in the organization. They're suggesting he probably will become part of a, the in-studio group to comment on the NFL. Uh, I, I think that uh, this is very unfortunate. We're in a business that's subjective. And so Joe uh, Testator and Booger, I thought, did a good job. Uh, and I, I just don't think this was a, a fair situation for them. But that's just my opinion. Uh, tomorrow also, in addition to Andrew Marchand, Bill Worrell, who's the television voice of the Houston Rockets. And there's a lot of good stories to talk about there. Mike D'Antoni's doing a great job with Houston. And James Harden and, and that whole organization, they... Uh, I don't know. It's, it's just fun to watch that team play basketball. On Wednesday, uh, Todd Archer, who's a, uh, a economist that covers the beat of the Dallas Cowboys, will join me. And Wayne Larrabee, who's, as I mentioned, the voice of the Green Bay Packers. That ought to be very interesting as well. So we've got a great week ahead of us. I want you to stay safe. I want you to stay out of trouble and come back tomorrow on Howard David Live. So you folks have a great day. Thanks. And to close out the show, a friendly reminder that Howard David Inside Sports is brought to you by BetOnline.ag. Go to BetOnline.ag, use the promo code MYPOD100, and they'll match your first deposit up to $1,000. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great rest of your week. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v 
on YouTube.